Uh, welcome, everyone, to the 48th Spireside Chat. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Oliver, for bringing us the the server and the service from that server in Germany, and for Justin, who does the editing. Um, today, we'll start with a question from Jordan on raw data and information. And Tom, if you could explain the difference between that and what Jordan wants to know is how can he better improve his recognition of data? And okay. what is the difference between the different types of observations of data as uh, in the context of flat land and three-dimensional site? Okay. Um, I'm going to try to make my answer shorter uh, so we get through more of the questions, hopefully, because we're dragging questions over from uh, Fireside Chat to Fireside Chat, so maybe we can get through uh, them more quickly this time. Well, there is a big difference between data and information. Data can be physical. Information is always non-physical. Data is the way we we uh, transmit information. You take the information, which is the content, the meaning, the significance, what it is you're trying to say. You take that, you turn it into data, and then that data gets sent to another person. That other person then receives the data and has to interpret it back into meaning and content and understanding. So you see the content and meaning and significance is only exists inside a consciousness. It's non-physical. So information is non-physical. That's the content, the understanding. Data is a mechanism for transmitting information. Now, data, like I say, can be can be physical, can be uh, you know ink on paper. It could be uh, you know blocks with letters on them. It could be any any sort of thing that we can use to encode the information with. It's a it's an encoding scheme, if you will, that can be transmitted. We'll kind of maybe define the data that way. Some sort of encoding scheme that that can be transmitted from person to person. So the the basic question here is how can one be better at at uh, interpreting the data? Okay, so you get data that somebody else has sent. Now that somebody else had to take that that knowledge, that intention that they had and convert it as best they could into data. And that's not a perfect process. When you take your your feelings, what you're trying to convey and turn it into words or symbols, that's not a 100% accurate process. You just do the best you can with the tools that you have. And then you send that to somebody and they get that and then they interpret that set of data according to their own experience base, to what makes sense to them, their own metaphors. They look at it and interpret it in their own way which is also not a perfect process that so we see in this communication. It starts with one perfect process with errors in it, moving to another person who then puts another imperfect process with errors on it to come up with the, with the, what's been communicated. Okay. So how do you improve that? The most fundamental way that you can improve it is to get rid of your fear. It's one way because the, the way, you know, your fear tends to cloud everything. If you have fear, then you have ego and beliefs. And when you get data that is contrary to those beliefs and contrary um, to what you'd like to believe with that ego, 
then you tend to just not see it, not hear it, ignore it, or justify it in some way. You somehow figure out a good way to just ignore it because it isn't what you are expecting. It isn't what you want to hear. So you get rid of your fear. Now you can actually process all the data rather than just taking parts of it and throwing it aside. So that's one thing. Another thing is to gain greater set of experience because you can only interpret the data based on, you know, your own experience. So if you have never gone more than 10 miles away from where you were born and never met more than 10 people and, you know, always kind of lived in the same house doing the same thing and that's your life, then you're going to have a very hard time interpreting data from people who have been lots of places and have bigger pictures than you have, you see. So to broaden your own experience, to get out, to interact, to share, to know lots of people and lots of cultures and and lots of different ways of looking at things, that tends to help you be better at um, processing the data, get more experience. So you get rid of those things that limit your data or limit the data you can process, which is the fear, the beliefs, and the ego, and you you broaden your ability to to understand. You you know about all the different kinds of metaphors that different people have in different places, and now that makes it easier for you to interpret the data. So those are the two basic ways for us to get better at interpreting data. And I guess the last thing I'd say is never feel like that your interpretation is a fact. It's just your interpretation. And even the data that somebody sent to you, that's probably not a fact either. That was just them trying to translate their content into data. So you should always be skeptical about what you get and not be too confident that uh, uh, what you get is necessarily what they intended and uh, and not too confident that uh, how you interpret it is is has to be the right way to interpret it. So with a little that gives you a little more humility in the conversation. And if you have that humility and uh, tend and will pay attention and try to work toward an understanding between the two people trying to communicate going back and forth, then that will be your best bet. Uh, mostly, most of us don't do that. We, we get an interpretation and we figure that's what they meant because that's what we would have meant if we had said that same thing. If we had produced that data, that's what we would have meant. So what we think that that's what they would have meant too. And that's generally not the case. This is the, the fundamental reason uh, that people write books like, um, you know, men are from Mars and women are for Venus from Venus because um, those are, you know, those, the, the two sexes often mean different things by the words that they use and the way they use words. Uh, so that uh, is a big problem. So I'd say just keep working at it. Uh, uh, who was this? Uh, um, Jordan, just keep working at understanding, at getting rid of your fear, at looking at bigger pictures and keeping enough humility that you realize you don't, you won't necessarily understand what people are trying to tell you. You have to work at that. And it's not uh, an easy thing. All right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Jordan also had a quote that he was wondering um, how you would explain. He has a quote from Ernest Rutherford. 
um, what do you think he meant when he said all science is either physics or stamp collecting? <laughs> uh, well, Ernest Rutherford was a physicist, and I'm guessing, but probably 1800s. And he was the he was the one who came up with the Rutherford model, which was the idea that that an atom was mostly empty space, that you had a tiny little nucleus and uh, a lot of empty space between atoms. So there was a little nucleus, which is very small, then a lot of empty space, then another nucleus, and then a lot of empty space and another nucleus. So he was looking at uh, sending particles through some sort of material and seeing what happened to the particles. And he noticed the way these particles scattered from these little, uh, from the nuclei. And he realized here, he came to the conclusion or had a model that uh, atoms were really little points with empty space between them. So that's the Rutherford model, and I'm thinking that's probably middle to the late 1800s, you know, 1870, something like that. So from that perspective, I think what he meant was, you know, that was kind of a, a heyday for physics, was just beginning to explain a lot of things that were not explained before. And I think his point was that physics is at the very root of things. And, and the way the science is lined up, is that there's mathematics at the beginning. That's the language of science. Science can't even speak or think without a language. And math is the language of science. But then the very basic, uh, most fundamental science then is physics because it deals with what is reality like? What's, you know, how does reality work? Why does it work that way? And then we build up from there to things like chemistry, which is a much more complex part of reality. It's a lot of things interacting, atoms interacting, the electrons in the atoms interacting, uh, different energy states that uh, make things stable or or uh, energy states that make things unstable and so on. It's a more complex pattern of matter. Uh, physics studies the very fundamentals. Chemistry studies those things as they get more complicated. And then you go from chemistry to biology and you have another vast step in complication and in uh, in the detail. So his thought was physics was at the bottom of the of that pile as far as physics goes. I mean, as far as science goes, it looks at the things most fundamental. And at that time, the other sciences, the chemistry and the biology, weren't too, you know, weren't real far progressed either. They were struggling just as physics was at that time. They were all struggling. And I think he saw everything else as just naming things. That's what he said, collecting postage stamps, you know, like, uh, a lot of the very early science was that way. You know, people named things. People saw and and kept track of things like um, the first uh, genetics works with seeds and how you could combine, uh, you know, different uh, kinds of plants and the, and the color and how when they, you know, what kind of colors you would get from the seeds of two plants that were crossed and they, one was purple and one was white, you know, and what you'd get and the probability of getting different things. I think he was calling that kind of thing, which was kind of the way science worked before, collecting things. How many kinds of rocks are they and what are their properties? You know, how to, how do plants uh, reproduce? That it was more like looking, inspecting, and then collecting that information, coming to some report. So his idea that, that, uh, <laughs> there's physics and everything else is, uh, is uh, collecting, is stamp collecting was kind of, I mean, that's just not true, but it probably seemed true 
back in the late to middle 1800s. That probably sounded like a good idea. So I'd say he was a little biased being a physicist, and uh, nobody should take that comment too seriously. The other sciences have plenty of fundamental things that they also need to understand uh, that are that are uh, clearly fundamental, even if they're on a more complex level. Then the the physics tries to stay on the simple the simplest level, elementary particles, you know, individual building blocks. So I wouldn't take that ser that too seriously. He was uh, feeling a little big, I guess, for having made a big discovery about the nature of matter and um, while other sciences were still mostly looking at properties and listing them. All right, thank you, Tom. We have a question from one of your MBT forum users on um, the nature of free will. Tom has stated that free will requires an element of randomness and uncertainty in order to exist. Where is the randomness in our case? Is it in the nature of the virtual reality or is it in the nature of consciousness? Is the random draw from the probability distribution the randomness required to allow free will? Or is it in our decision-making and choice-making process itself? That's the first okay. part of the question. Okay. I'm not sure that I have ever said that free will requires randomness to exist. I think that's probably something I did not say. But it's something that could be uh, inferred in that. I have said, and, and this is true, that because of randomness, we have a much larger decision space because of things that are uncertain, because of things that we don't know how they're going to be. In other words, if we could, by, if we could with certainty specify all the things in our life and, and, and why they work the way they worked and how they were going to, you know, what they were going to do next, like if our life was just a bunch of machines, it was us and a bunch of machines. And if we understood the machines well enough, we could be pretty good about predicting the machines. Well, in that world, there wouldn't be a lot of decision space in the sense that so much of our reality would be predictable. But now let's say instead of machines that are very predictable, we put people in there who are not predictable at all, who may do any sort of thing. Well, now the amount of of issues that we might have to deal with, the amount of things that could happen, the amount of possibilities suddenly is much greater because you have uncertainty. You have a lot of things you don't know, a lot of things you can't depend on, which means you're going to be faced with new problems, new issues, new ways of looking at things all the time. So uncertainty is part of what creates a very rich uh decision space, a rich set of choices for us. We all, you know, interacting with each other. So you have a lot of humans. Well, what did we have? Seven and a half billion of us. And the interactions between all of us create a very rich set of choices for each other. So everything that we do, you know, everything that I do affects the people around me. And the closer those people are to me, the more it affects them. And then what they do, so I affect, say, what my wife thinks. And then she will affect what her friends think. And they will affect what their friends think. And we all interact like that. And that stew that is, that is created out of all of us interacting with each other gives us this wonderful um, uh, set of possible choices that we have 
that uh, we can then exercise our free will uh, more easily, more readily, and more deeply because of all the choices we have. So that's kind of the connection between chance and free will. Free will is just the ability to make a choice. It's the ability to consciously make a choice. A choice because that's the choice you want to make, not because that's the choice you have to make because you're hardwired and your and your uh, you know your biology will only allow you to make that one choice. That's not free will. If you drop a rock, the rock doesn't fall down because it makes a choice. It heads toward the earth because it has no other option. That's just part of the rule set. So it doesn't say, well, somebody let go of me. Let's see, what am I going to do now? Am I going to fall up or down or sideways? I have a choice. Has no choice. It just goes down because that's the rule set. So they will say that rock doesn't have any free will over that choice. So that's, you know, free will doesn't require uncertainty. Free will only requires choices. So in any case, uh, go on. It sounded like there was more to the question. There is. The, the second part, Jim, goes on to say, you've also stated that our intent affects for future probability. Is this a fundamental aspect of reality or a local aspect of our system and our PMR virtual reality? Is it possible for a PMR virtual reality to exist in which intent has zero effect on future probability? Is this effect necessary for the existence of free will? Is this effect the source of how consciousness is capable of controlling a PMR avatar in a PMR virtual reality? And by PMR, we mean a physical matter reality. Well, there were an awful lot of questions, and those were good questions. They had some depth to them, so it'll be a little hard to to uh, remember them all in great detail. But uh, the the idea that we have our intent changes future probability um, is a feature of this particular virtual reality that we have here. It's an, it's the nature of this reality, and the reason it's a it's a feature of this reality is it's the feedback that we need to make better choices. You see, if you if you don't get feedback, then it's hard to improve your choices. You make a choice and then you see what happens. And by that feedback, you make more choices. Well, we make all kinds of choices in a day that we don't even know we're making the choices. You know, we, uh, we don't even realize we're making choices. You know, the good example of that is somebody insults you and you get angry. Well, you have a choice to be angry. You could do something else. In that case, it's your fear, your ego, and your beliefs that are informing your choices, but still it's your choice. So we make all kinds of choices and the feedback we get from those choices has to do with us. Well, it has to do with a lot of things. It has to do how the other people react to the choices we make and how we react to the choices they make. So that's part of it. And another part of it is that the whole collective of us creates a social system and that social system is affected by the quality of our choices. So we tend to make things, uh, we tend to, uh, uh, what should I say, you know, create our own reality only in the extent that we can modify future probability and in the extent of how we affect each other. Okay, so, so that's, you know, we don't make our, our, our future, we don't create the future entirely. We just 
have influence on the future, shall we say. And that influence is tied up with our feedback so that we can make better choices. So it's the nature of our reality. But I would say in all of the realities that are like the one that's our physical universe, I call those realities with tight rule sets, realities where the rule sets so tight that it seems physical. Everything interacts according to a rule set. There's very, uh, um, you know, the rules keep all the interactions very tightly wrapped up according to the rule set. Uh, in those realities, I would think that the the fact that intent modifies future probability is probably a fact there as well as it is here. Now, that's something I have not really personally tested because I get in and out of these rule sets and I'm usually an observer. And you'd have to be an observer over a pretty long time before you could determine a, the, how the structure of the reality system worked. But um, I can't say for sure, but I would think just knowing the system and the function of the realities and so on, that this would be a property of all of the realities that were tight rule set. Now, in other reality frames, um, you can get that more or less. So in a in an out-of-body reality, often you can you can affect things, you can create things, you can manifest things with your intent. So that very strongly affects the probable future. But that's just part of the way you're interacting with that reality. It's the, you know, you don't have a, a, a tight rule set there. So a lot of things can happen. A lot more things can happen. A lot more things are possible in the way they can happen than they will here, where the rule set says only these certain things are allowed. There are more things are allowed. So it could be you, you'd be in a virtual reality where you couldn't modify anything. Your intent was inert it had no ability to change anything or it could be like an out-of-body where your intent was a very strong player in your reality uh, and even different out-of-body realities could be one could be where your intent has no effect and others would be where your intent has great effect just a different virtual reality if you will a different purpose virtual realities have their purpose so i don't think it's a a thing that has to be everywhere it's more a property of the way the virtual reality is set up than it is a property of consciousness itself so that portion of the question that he asks is this effect necessary for the existence of free will no. um, it is not so all right um, we'll go on from that question to another mbt forum user question um, how do you know for certain whether an action you are taking is from love or from ego? Well, the short answer to that is you don't. You never know for certain uh, what, you know, exactly what you're doing or why you're doing it. You know, you very rarely have any certainty. You do the best you can. You look at a situation and you try to come from love. You try to make your choices to minimize entropy all around, not just for you, but for everybody involved and for those involved with the people involved. You know, so you, you minimize entropy for, for everyone and for the system and for yourself. And you do your best you can at that. And then all you can do is do it and look at what happens. You know, look at the results. 
and decide whether you made a good choice or maybe you could have made a better choice. And from that, you learn. So then you make your next set of choices. So the way people learn and grow is to understand something about the nature of reality. That helps. Understand that you're here to minimize entropy. That's what your evolution is all about. Then make choices as best you can and pay attention to the feedback you get from the results of those choices. And learn from those. That's the way we that's the way we grow. Has nothing to do with not making choices until we're certain they're right. We never know for sure how it's going to end up. We don't have any way of computing future entropy and how low or how high it's going to get with all the interactions of all the people interacting with each other. You know, what do we call those? All the unintended consequences of things that we might do. Those things are just too difficult for us to understand. And because everybody has free will, we wouldn't be able to guess very well anyway. So uh, you just do the best you can and you learn from your mistakes. So that's, a, I guess, the, the major point here is don't not act because you're not certain that it's the right thing. People can get paralyzed, so they really can't function. They can't act. They can't make choices because they don't know whether it's the right thing or not. If you're paralyzed and afraid to act, then you're not in the process of learning. Okay, come to your best conclusion, do your homework, think about it in depth, spend some time, you know, seeing it from every angle you can, make your best choice, and then let those chips fall wherever they fall, and learn a lesson and go on. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to do something and look at the results and grow from them. So it's, there's, no, there's no penalty for making mistakes. Mistakes are expected. Mistakes are even necessary because you're not perfect. You don't know everything. You're going to make mistakes. So accept that. Mistakes are fine as long as you learn from them. If you keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over again and just never learn from it, well, that's a problem. Most of us, are, most of us do that quite a lot, but that's a problem. It's not a problem making a mistake. It's only a problem not learning anything from the mistake you make. So I'd say don't worry about not being certain between whether it's coming from love or ego. Just try to make it come from love. Do the best you can and see how it turns out. If things turn out consistently badly for you, then they're probably being made mostly by ego. If not, then you know, they're probably most consistently being made by love it's not a problem to make mistakes all right thank you tom we'll move on to one more question from the mbt forum before we turn it over to our guests who are present here um, the question is i have a query regarding the lcs's ability to and likelihood of adjusting the rule set of our current pmr with specific reference to slowing climate change there's recently been a suggestion in the news that the Earth is in a state of runaway climate change where feedback loops have been set in motion, such as methane being released from ice melts, to cause a state of irreversible global warming, which would perhaps make the human species extinct in a relatively short time. In some of your videos, 
and and I, I remember these. You've spoken about the current moment in time as being an opportunity for us to grow up and improve the quality of consciousness, particularly in the context of some of these significant challenges that we're facing. And I think I also heard you say at some point that the LCS can intervene to a degree in tampering with the rule set if it wishes to in order to keep the game running. My query is whether the LCS would or could intervene in slowing climate change, surely one of the biggest threats to the human species at the present, if it appears that we are moving towards a state of lower entropy, or would the LCS not be willing to edit the PMR in this way so that we could instead learn from the consequences of our choices? Well, first I'd have to say the uh, LCS does not ask me uh, you know, whether any of its moves are good moves or not, you know, I'm, I'm not in their, uh, hierarchy that they have to check with me first. So the LCS will do, you know, whatever it sees best. But the answer to the first question is yes, it can make changes. It is possible for it to change anything. This is a computed reality. And all it has to do is make those changes such that it's not obvious to the avatars and the conscious plane avatars that it has intervened it's constrained by that it's not just suddenly going to you know rewind and do something drastically different that's not likely not that it can't it could but that's not so likely if it can intervene in ways that uh, um, are what uh, you know not noticeable for the most part then it will do that more readily. So that's an easier thing for it to do or an easier thing for it to come to conclusion to do that. So in this particular case with global warming, you know, is there a way that it could make the global warming slow down enough that we could get our act together? Well, perhaps if it saw that we were in the process of growing that this would be a an unfortunate time, you know, for everybody to go extinct because we were just kind of almost getting there and now, poof, you know, we snuff ourselves out and have to start over again and uh, evolution will keep on cranking and we'll eventually, you know, <laughs> have these choices again. But, uh, yes, it could intervene in that sense because what it wants to do, you know, think about its mission. Its mission is to help us lower system entropy and our own entropy help us evolve so it will do pretty much what it can to make that happen it's not on our, our path of growing up if it just comes down and fix things as we mess them up <laughs> you know it's the same with raising a child if every time your child makes a mistake you just fix it for them and you know they're having trouble in school so you do their homework for them so they'll get a better better grade for their homework and uh they get in trouble, uh, you know, with the law and you bail them out and they have this and that. And every time they make bad choices, you just fix it for them. You're not helping them learn to make better choices. So the system isn't just going to fix things for us because, you know, that would give us a break or help us out. That doesn't really help us out. That makes it even harder for us to grow up, harder for us to see the link between our choices and, and the problems we create or the successes that we have. So in general, it's the larger conscious system doesn't, you know, doesn't mess in. It doesn't change things. It lets people experience 
the conclusions that they have created. You know, it lets them experience the consequences of their choices because that's how we learn. It's by experiencing the consequences of our choices. But if it sees that there's a chance that uh, with a little finagling on its part, we can get through this and all do a whole lot better and grow up, sure, it would probably do that rather than have it all have to start over and take another, uh, you know, 200,000 years to, you know, climb back out of the trees and, uh, you know, get to where we, we are now. But if that's the way it is, it can let that go too. So I have no idea what the system might do in any particular place. I just know it's basic attitude is not to interfere, but it can interfere if it wants to, even dramatically, it could interfere if it wanted to. You know, we could wake up one morning and, you know, all the ice that's melted could be frozen again. You know, that would be something that would obviously be a a flagrant violation of the rule set. But if it wanted to do that, it could. It probably just doesn't want to because then that's not a you know, that's not letting us experience the consequences of our choices. And it's breaking, it's, it's kind of breaking the, the virtual reality in the sense that, that uh, it's, it's no longer such a good virtual reality because it's, it uh, sees this magic that happens. So anyway, um, who knows what it will do, what position we put it in. But yes, it can intervene in any way that it wishes. And it probably will intervene if it thinks that will lead to minimum entropy in the long term. All right. Thank you, Tom. I'm going to turn the question over to Mark now. He has a question. Please go ahead with that if you'd like to read your own question. Hey, Tom. Hey, everybody. Hi, Mark. Um, I'm confused about the being level. Um, my daily intent has always been, you know, to get rid of my ego, fears, and beliefs. And my understanding is once we get rid of these things, we become love. We then go into our, our being level. And I meditate. I sit in silence. I do self-inquiry practice uh, to try to shut off my mind. I've been deep into looking at childhood traumas. Um, I eat a plant-based diet, I run yoga, I quit using drugs, I'm working on sexual energy transmutation, and I know these are all doing things, and I'm just wondering if I'm missing something or if I'm too attached, because, you know, lately for the past, you know, for the past three years on my spiritual journey, I thought maybe I had experienced some synchronicities in my life, but for the last couple of months, these these experiences, these synchronicities seem to have stopped. And I've lately felt very alone and unsupported by the larger consciousness system. And I'm trying to surrender to this system, but I feel one step removed from, you know, impending doom and despair. And, you know, I'm kind of... I'm kind of looking for an experience. You know, I'm reading uh, Hands of Light by Barbara Brennan, and I'm just amazed by the experiences and her experiences, what she's talking about. Um, but I kind of don't trust my thoughts that I'm, I feel drawn to this. I don't trust my mind. I don't seem to have much of an intuition to help guide me. You know, I feel equally close to 
being able to get to my being level and at the same time I feel just as far as as I as I when I started this process because I thought I was making process progress on overcoming fears and and moving towards this being level but just this past week I had you know intense suicidal feelings which made me question a lot of things like have I only made progress in my own intellect and like I said I'm looking for an experience because this is not my truth because I have not had one of these experiences outside of drugs a drug experience and I just kind of feel stuck and I'm asking for help okay um you're you're not alone in getting to that to that spot there's a lot of people who uh share your story um yes for the for for a large part of it it is probably your intellect is getting in the way your intellect is is uh you know it is you're doing the right things in the sense that you are trying to eliminate those things that are um troublesome that would get in your way so you have a you know a good diet which then gets rid of some of the issues you might have uh physical things you you feel better so you're not you don't have uh you know a bellyache while you're trying to meditate or something that it, it makes you healthier your mind's clearer and you know the you have to be a little well let me back up a little you, you when you do these things that you think are eliminating problems First, you have to uh, you have to look at is there a problem? You know, you were you were talking about reprogramming sexual energy. Well, that's only going to be helpful if you're having a problem with sexual energy. If your sexual energy is a is a problem issue for you, then yes, it would be good to work with that. But if it's not, well, you don't have to transmute you know sexual energy into spiritual energy um, if your sexual energy isn't isn't uh, dominating your your choices then you're a sexual being humans are sexual beings and that you have sexual energy and and sexual instincts and so on just chalk that up to being a human you know that's the way the avatar has evolved and you should not suppress or try to get rid of or even transmute you should you know what um you know you should celebrate that as part of you it's just part of who you are and what you are it's part of the rule set and our evolution here with this rule set has given you that. So you have to not look at these things as, well, I'm doing these things that are going to get me to where it is I want to go, to have these experiences, to be a, you know, a person of love. So I'm going to do A, B, C, D. Well, A, B, C, and D may or may not be helpful. Depends on whether those things are giving you any problems or not in particular. And way people sometimes see it is they're working on a b c and d and they've they've done all these things that they've read about that's supposed to help get the problems out of the way and they're still not getting anywhere and then that's kind of depressing like look i'm doing all this work you know i'm i'm uh i'm you know eating veggies and fruits i've I've given this up i've given that up i no longer drink coffee you know i don't take drugs i don't smoke i've i've done all this and nothing's happening well, you don't get there just by, you know, doing things that prevent you from getting there. That may be a help if those things are preventing you from getting there. But if your diet really wasn't preventing you from getting there so much, 
And if your sexuality was just normal sexuality and that was fine and that's not preventing you, now you're putting effort in things that really aren't paying off very much. And if you put a lot of effort in these things, you don't necessarily see a great gain for them. You probably will see a small gain for all of them, but not necessarily enough to make a lot of difference, particularly if your intellect is in charge because you're looking for something that will you know, convince your intellect that you are now bigger, better, you know, faster, smarter, kinder, you know, more gentler, more love than you used to be. Well, the best way to assess that is just look backwards. Look back over the past, you know, you said, let's say you've been doing this for five years. Look back over the past five years and say, how am I different now from the way I was then? What's different about me? And if you've got people that have known you over that time, you can ask them, you know, how have I changed over the last five years? And you can come to assessment. And if basically they say, eh, I don't see any change. You're still the same person you were five years ago. You know, I remember when we were in college together or when we were in high school together or whatever. And, yeah, you were exactly the same way. Well, that means you probably haven't really changed much. But if you have become kinder and gentler and more thoughtful, and more caring, and you have developed a bigger picture, and are not so self-centered, and you do see, you know, you, you can see things from other people's viewpoints and that you didn't before, then you're making progress. So the best way of looking at prog for progress isn't, did something big happen to me, is did a whole bunch of little things happen to me that I actually didn't even notice that are making me a, a better person. So one, I'd say you're going about measuring success maybe in the wrong way. Um, secondly, being level, as you know, is not about doing. You're doing things and then looking as for a result of the doing. Being doesn't require a lot of doing. Being requires authenticity, of knowing exactly who you are and why you are and, and getting to know yourself, getting to know, uh, you know, getting to accept that your fears are your fears and that your ego is the way it is and just really getting to know yourself the way you are. That's a, that's an important part of it. That'll help you get a bigger picture. As far as the phenomenal things go, like out of body or, um, um, you know, being able to remote view, that sort of things. Most of that is just practice. And if you get some of the basic ideas of how that works, which you can get from things that I put out on YouTube, you know, you can, you get the idea of just how that works and you have to practice at it. But the biggest ingredient in it to make it work is exist at the being level. And this is where you started your conversation was, you know, I don't sure, I'm not sure I get this being level thing. Um, the being level thing is where you just are. You're working from your center. Okay, uh, let me give you some examples of being level. Uh, we often use the word getting in the zone. If you're in the zone, you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're not doing it from your intellect. Uh, for example, uh, when you learn to type, if you just type without having to look at your fingers and find the keys, you know, if you type, by just putting your hands on a keyboard and your fingers tend to move themselves as you look at the text you're trying to type, then you are in the zone 
with typing. You've taken your intellect out of it. You don't say, okay, R, where's the R? Okay, it's up in the, that's, that's the finger, and then you hit the R key. That's intellectual. If you just, you don't ask where the R is. You see an R on the page and a finger automatically jumps to hit that R without you thinking about it or giving instructions at all. That's being in the zone. There was a guy who was about 10 years ago at my house and he was doing painting and he was an amazing painter. He could paint, you know, woodwork around windows without using any tape. If I painted woodwork around windows without any tape, you know, I'd spend the next five hours scraping paint, you know, off of the glass. But uh, even when I put tape there, I, I have to scrape paint off of the glass. But this guy, without any tape at all, he'd just take that print brush, dip it in the paint, reach up there, and run his paintbrush down, you know, two or three feet where the woodwork. And he wouldn't leave a molecule of bare wood showing, and he wouldn't leave a molecule of paint on the glass. How he did that, I don't know, but he was good at it, and he could do it stroke after stroke after stroke. But if you went up and talked to him, you'd notice he, he'd kind of break out of a trance before you could talk to him. If you go, how do you do that? And it'd take him a while before you'd even realize that you talked to him, and then it was like, huh? Oh, well, I don't know. It's just, you know, the way I learned to do it or something. He was in the zone with his painting. Because if his intellect was in charge and said, okay, now I got to watch that I don't touch that glass. Be real careful here. I got to get real close, but I don't want to touch it. He would have had paint all over the glass, which is what I do when I try to paint glass. You see, you try to control it with your intellect and it doesn't work. So this is what I mean by getting into the being level where you let your intellect go and you just be. Now that being could be typing or painting, you know, painting woodwork around glass or anything that you just do it. And, you know, if you have hobbies or you have anything else where you get in that, if you do martial arts and you get in that, or you do painting and you get in that, whatever it is you do, you will find that very relaxing and very satisfying. Well, I'm asking you, or not asking you, but I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to get into life like that. <laughs> Not necessarily painting or, you know, or any of those things or the typing, but get into life like that to where you live life, not through your intellect, but through your connection to everything. And one of the ways you do that is exist in the moment, because if you're existing in the past and the future, your mind's constantly running and, you know, and processing and analyzing and that sort of things. And that breaks you out of it. That gets you out of the being level. So you just have to open yourself, be, be with what you're doing, whether that's remote viewing or whether it's driving your car or whether it's having a conversation with a person, be there completely with that in the zone to where you are just interacting. You're being yourself. It's all coming, flowing from you without a lot of thought. That's the being level. Okay. So you can practice it in places other than meditation. It's that place where you function without direction from your intellect. So that maybe will give you a little more of a sense of what the being level is. And that's why people tell you to live in the moment, because they're trying to help you get into the being level. Because when you're in the moment, the only thing that you're really aware of is just you and what you're doing or who you're interacting with. And you're completely there with that thing. 
because that's when you can do it in the being level. If you're not in the moment, if you're in the past, the present, the future, and calculating and doing six other things at the same time with your mind, you can't get into the moment. You're dominated by your intellect. Your intellect is, has uh, grabbed complete control. Now, eventually, you will learn to let your intellect be in charge sometimes when that's handy and be in the being level sometimes when that's handy, and you can jump back and forth between them very quickly, just like that typist. You can walk up and talk to that typist or that painter, and they can stop what they're doing, talk to you, and go right back to it. It's not like they have to sit for 15 minutes and get into a meditation state first before they can go back to typing or painting. They can go back to it very quickly, jump into it and out of it, and that's the thing that you need to learn too, to get into the being level, get out of the being level. So when we get our intellect involved, our intellect starts setting up goals, things it expects, what it wants to do, and when the goals aren't met, you get discouraged. It's like it's not working. I'm not doing it right. What am I doing wrong? And why is it not working for me? Am I just incapable of this or or does none of it really work anyway? Because the intellect is not satisfied with what it's you know with what it's getting. So if you just be you will be satisfied with what you're getting. I guess is what I'm saying. It's an intellectual problem because when you are in that being level, usually you're very satisfied. Those are the things that are the most wonderful things for you to do, whether that's listening to music or doing art or painting a wall or doing whatever it is you do. Those moments that you're just in that state of being are good moments, are the refreshing moments, satisfying moments. and uh, you know, if you if you operate in your life at the being level, you'll have a satisfying life. It'll be a good life. You won't have this feeling of failure, feeling of not doing it, failure of it not working. That's all your intellectual perspective. So I'd say, yes, keep working at that being level thing. You're probably a left brain analytical kind of person. And those kinds of people struggle with being level because their whole life is based on intellectual process. They earn their money with their intellect. You know, they uh, maintain their friendships and their relationships with their intellect. They think their way through things and they're committed to do that because they think that if they did it any other way, they'd certainly crash and burn if they didn't have that intellect to keep them from doing stupid things and making mistakes. And so there's a little bit of fear and a little bit of courage that you need to to just be authentic and be you and don't expect to just do that on a dime, you know, turn on a dime, but uh, generally more and more of your life into getting in the zone and just being with it, not with any particular end result in mind. You're just doing the process. You're just being part of life. You're interacting with another person and you're not interacting with your mind going, well, I wonder where this is going. I wonder how how's this going to be good for me? What can I get out of this? Or can I help them and kind of help them do this or do that? That's the mind constantly chattering, evaluating, judging. And that's what we do at work because that's how we get paid and that's how we earn our living. But it doesn't work very well when our work is to grow up. So I'd say it's a, you have an overdose of intellect that is, uh, getting in your way, and then complaining when it doesn't see the results. 
I know, it's discouraging. It can be exasperating. And when I tell this to you, I can see everybody else's face here smiling and nodding their head. And, you know, you're not the first one to run into this thing. It's like, you know, 90% of the population out there is, is in the same boat that you are. That's why I'm taking a little more time with it, because this is a a very, very common thing. Because we in Western culture treasure and, and, and pay high prices for an intellect. And we call names to people. <laughs> who are in the zone, you know, space cadets, uh, you know, we call them uh, the sorts of things and we don't uh, value them very highly and we don't pay them very much for what they do. So it's our culture. We tend to be left brain. We tend to be focused that way. And it's a struggle to let that go. And I'm not saying that you need to let it go. Like you need to throw it away. You don't, you need that intellect. That intellect is a really good thing. You need it at work. You need it to find your car keys. You need it for all sorts of things. But you shouldn't let it dominate your life. There's another part of your life that exists at the being level. And basically, you need to let that out, get familiar with it, and then learn how to switch back and forth so that you're in a being level whenever that's more appropriate and effective, like you're trying to, you know, uh, do remote viewing or trying just to really connect to another human being, then you get out of your intellect. But if you're trying to find your car keys or you're trying to solve that uh, you know, math problem at work or some engineering problem or some whatever other problem that you might do at work, then put your intellect up in front. And what you'll find is that when the intellect and the being level work together, that being level is really your intuition. When your intuition and your bigger picture stuff and your intellect all share the load and do the things they do well, you get to be much better at everything, even your intellectual stuff. Those problems that are almost always intellectual at work, they fall out because you've got an intuition now that can kind of jump to the answer without you actually knowing how it got there, which makes it a lot easier to solve the problem. So I want you to be whole brain, not just right brain, not just left brain, but all of it. And in our culture, we tend to be mostly left brain dominant and we tend to not trust our intuition. And uh, we have it a very hard time to find that being level and, and be in it. So just keep struggling. It's not a fantasy. It does exist. There is a being level. You have one. And uh, you just have to have the patience and let your intellect stop judging. Am I doing it right? Is this the right thing? Well, I'm eating vegetables, you know, that's supposed to help. And, uh, you know, I'm doing this, that's supposed to help. Let's see, is it helping? No, I really don't feel anything any different. Well, that's just your intellect talking to itself. You need to be these other things, not think about them, not get ready for them, not just get the things out of the way for them, but then you have to actually be them. So i don't know it's 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 hard for me to tell you what to do because you will interpret you know and you will you will tend to do it the way you've always done it you will tend to try to use your intellect to get rid of your intellect and that will be problematical that's just what intellectual people do you know say okay how can i think my way to the being level and it's like no that's not really the right approach you need to just exist, just be. Spend some time in that 
in that uh, point consciousness state, if you can, if you can get there and hang there, where you, where you are nothing but awareness that you exist, and that's all. That's being level. You're not thinking. You're not judging. You're not, you're not judging even the state. You're just experiencing it, not judging it. See, so. Find things that you do. Maybe it's at work. Maybe the work you do, you get into the you, you get into the zone with whatever it is you do. Um, understand that that is a being level thing. You know, you're no longer uh, really using your intellect to tell your hands and feet what to do. They're just you're doing it. You know, people get like that on the dance floor. They go dancing. And they don't say, well, I need to move this foot forward. Oh, I should move it back about a half an inch. Now I need to move the other foot. My arm should go up. If you're doing that, you're not having any fun dancing. When you can just let go and express whatever you feel with your body without worrying about what parts are going where, now you're having fun. But if you've got an intellect that says, gee, I wonder what everybody's thinking. Do they all think I'm a fool out here, you know, making uh, an idiot of myself on the dance floor? Well, that's your intellect starting to judge and assess, and that will mess you up. And if you let that happen, then you'll just say, no, I don't dance <laughs> because you won't feel comfortable just being, you know, on the floor. However you are, it doesn't matter what people think about it. It's irrelevant. So I don't know if I've helped any or not. I've been all around the bushes and looked at it from four or five different ways because I know it's difficult. For you to comprehend what I'm what I'm saying about the being level, if you are a intellectual, just keep working on it. It is there, and you can get there. Have an intent to get there. I am going to get there. I have this intent, and just the intent itself will help you get there. Did any Thanks, of that Tom. help? Yeah, I mean, for my whole life, I, I've always wondered where this intuition is, but I guess I've been blocked. You know, I don't feel like I have an intuition or I'm very intuitive. And I guess my intellect is blocking that intuition by well, not allowing yeah. me to be in that space. Or yeah, the way, your intellect, the way your intellect does that is that you have intuition and your intuition will do something and your intellect right away says, well, how do you know that? Why do you think that's a good idea? You know, you start to examine and analyze it. And... Then if you actually do it and it works out, you'll credit your intellect for deciding that it was a good thing to do. If it doesn't work out, you'll blame your intuition for not being good. So it's mm. one of those things that your, your intuition never really gets much of a chance to develop. You have to develop these things. You have to develop touch typing. You have to develop painting without getting anything on the glass. You know, it's not just something you do right away. You have to develop this sort of thing. So um, the intellect gets in the way and stops you developing it because just as you start, it jumps in front and takes over. That's the problem. That's the problem most people have with remote viewing. They can't just open up and experience what comes. They have to make something come, and then they need to assess it to see if it makes sense, and then they're lost when they do either one of those things it ruins the process so it just keep working and don't push don't punish yourself don't push yourself it's not like well i'm doing this and i must have failed because i'm just not ready or whatever whatever and what do you mean i'm not ready that's a bunch of baloney this whole thing is nonsense you know that's 
I, I understand that feeling, but it is real and you can get there, but be more patient with yourself. Don't push yourself so hard. Take it as it comes to you. Maybe you're just trying too hard. Often trying too hard gets in the way because it puts all the, all your energy into the intellectual thing of trying. And, you know, what is it, uh, you know, it's not about, it's not about doing, it's about not doing, not trying. Do without trying, right? And I sound like, you know, some Zen guy trying to teach a student, you know, do without doing. <laughs> Study the sound of one hand clapping and, you know, so on. Um, trying too hard is often a problem because then you blame yourself yeah. when it doesn't work. I've been really working on quieting the mind and meditation and really thinking that I wasn't even doing it correctly for maybe a couple of years, just letting my intellect go. And I've really just been focused on trying to, to just be in a silence, you know, no, no intellect going. That's a good thing. And how does that work? Yeah. How long do you, how long can you do that with before an intellectual thought comes in? Well, in the beginning, it says that I, it's impossible. It says that you're not going to be able to do it. And, you know, now I can get it to maybe like 10 or 20 seconds. So, yeah, yeah progress. it was growing. Yeah, yeah totally progress. Keep working on it. You know, that's the way it is. You know, you usually start out and it's like a half a second. And then you get mm -hmm. it up to 10 or 20 seconds and just it may take you another six months to get it up to 25. But just keep working on that. But don't get frustrated with yourself. It'll come to you as you you know, as it does, it's not like this is a task and you got a goal and you're going to force your way to the goal that keeps you from getting to your goal. Can't you can't push your way there. You have to just let it happen. So just be willing to just to sit there for as long as it can. The thought comes in, put it aside, you know, do a little more. Don't get thinking about, well, now how many seconds was that? Oh yeah, that was 12 and a half. That's not too bad. You know, just don't analyze it. Just experience it. Be more gentle with yourself, not so not so pushy to push yourself to an endpoint, to a goal. Just be and let it come on its own without goals. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. I hope it helps. I know. No, it definitely helps. I know how hard it is. <laughs>